Hello, dear listener, and welcome to today's episode of A Minder, which is on epidemiological studies published in January 2020. This is Nyla, and I'll be giving you an update on new peer-reviewed research articles that explore the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease, various comorbidities, environmental risk factors, and also some protective factors. We've got a total of 21 papers to go through, so let's not waste more time. That said, I'll be back right after this introduction. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Alright, so before I launch into my summaries, I just want to remind you that these are summaries based on abstracts. So that means we don't search details in the papers unless it's open access and we have the time to do so. This podcast is meant to provide an overview of the literature, but if you want to follow up on anything you've heard today, we encourage you to find the papers in our bibliography and give them a proper read. You can find a bibliography with each episode and we will number each paper for you so you can easily find them again. So with that out of the way, note some abbreviations I'll be using. Alzheimer's disease, I refer to as AD. I might say MCI for mild cognitive impairment and other abbreviations I will define throughout. All right, so we have two papers to start us off on AD prevalence. The first paper sought to distinguish between mild, moderate, and severe AD, which studies providing prevalence data often do not do. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Yuan, and the last author is Masaro, and the title is Severity Distribution of Alzheimer's Disease Dementia and Mild Cognitive Impairment in the Framingham Heart Study. This study analyzed the distribution of severity of AD dementia and MCI in the population-based Framingham Heart Study. A total of nearly 1,200 older adults with prevalent MCI or AD dementia clinical syndrome were cross-sectionally selected from three time windows in the study, namely 2004 to 2005, 2006 to 07, and 2008 to 09. The results from these windows were pooled for estimates of the severity distribution. The authors found that among AD dementia participants, the pooled percentages were around 50% mild, 30% moderate, and 19% severe. Among all MCI and AD participants, approximately 30% were MCI cases, 20% were MCI that progressed to dementia, and 45% had mild AD. The others also present distributions by age and sex, but the overall finding is that half of the people living with AD are in early stages, which highlights the need for early interventions that could slow decline or prevent disease progression. Paper number two also examined the prevalence of multiple dementia subtypes, but this time specifically in Norway. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Giora, and the last author is Selbeck, and the title is Current and Future Prevalence Estimates of Mild Cognitive Impairment, Dementia, and Its Subtypes in a Population-Based Sample of People 70 Years and Older in Norway, the Hunt Study. Okay, that's a pretty good summary. So this study pulled participants over 70 years of age from the fourth wave of the Trondelag Health Study, which is HUNT-4. 
9,930 people participated in the study and were assessed using cognitive tests and structured questionnaires with caregivers. Clinical experts made a diagnosis of MCI or various dementia types using the DSM-5 criteria. The authors found that the standardized prevalence of dementia and MCI was 14.6% and 35.3% respectively. Dementia was more prevalent in women, with the most common subtype being AD, whereas MCI was more prevalent in men. This prevalence was higher than previous studies, and the authors estimate that just over 101,000 people are currently living with dementia in Norway, a number which could more than double over the next 30 years. Next up, we have nine papers on comorbidities of Alzheimer's disease, specifically cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and a few miscellaneous conditions. These comorbidities could be causative or perhaps result from a shared mechanism with AD, or they could compound with AD to worsen disease progression. If you want more on the mechanism, there's a whole separate episode, or actually two, dedicated to that. Paper number three looked at the prevalence of geriatric syndromes in early-stage AD and dementia with Lewy bodies, which are the two most common types of dementia. It was published in Aging, Clinical, and Experimental Research by two authors. The first one is Soysel, and the last one is Tan. And the title is The Prevalence and Coincidence of Geriatric Syndromes in Older Patients with Early-Stage Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia with Lewy Bodies. The authors examined a total of 82 elderly patients with either early-stage AD or dementia with Lewy bodies for multiple geriatric syndromes. You can find the full list of conditions in the abstract, but to name a few, they included orthostatic hypertension, malnutrition, frailty, urinary and fecal incontinence, fear of falling, depression, and insomnia. Depression? Depression. Been a long week. So, the authors found that orthostatic hypertension, fear of falling, depression, and insomnia were more common in patients with dementia with Lewy bodies, who generally had more geriatric symptoms, or sorry, syndromes, than patients with AD. That said, over 50% of AD patients had three or more geriatric syndromes, so these findings indicate that both forms of dementia often coincide with other geriatric syndromes. As we saw from this last paper, comorbidity reports often focus on the elderly population, but the extent of comorbidities in younger age groups remains unknown. This is the topic of paper number four, which is entitled Alzheimer's Disease Neuropathological Comorbidities Are Common in the Younger Olds. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. There are two authors, the first is Beach and the last is Malek Ahmadi. The authors assessed the presence of neuropathological comorbidities in sporadic AD dementia using data from the U.S. National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. The data was restricted to subjects with dementia who had intermediate to high AD neuropathological change and to those who did not have a familial form of AD, so not a genetic form. They found that even early onset cases of AD dementia showed comorbidities. In fact, only 44% of cases in the under 60 group were purely AD without other complications, and this percentage declined to 20% in the 70s and beyond. In relation to the last article, Lewy body disease was the most common comorbidity at younger ages, but actually was less common at later ages. 
Let's move into some papers on cardiovascular and metabolic risk factors, which are some of the most well-established comorbidities of AD. So specifically, I'm talking about things like hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and cardiovascular diseases. So to get us started for those comorbidities, we have paper number five, which is entitled Association Between APOE-E4 Carrier Status and Cardiovascular Risk Factors on Mild Cognitive Impairment Among Mexican Older Adults. The first author on this paper is Aguilar Navarro, and the last author is Mimenza Alvarado, and it was published in Brain Sciences. You likely also already know that the presence of the APOE-E4 polymorphism is associated with AD and other dementias. To test the association with cardiovascular risk factors and MCI, this cross-sectional study included 137 older adults uh, with normal cognition, amnestic MCI, or non-amnestic MCI. Using multinomial logistic regression models, the authors found that APOE-E4 carrier status, which was present in 28.8% of participants, was not associated with either form of MCI. The interaction between APOE-E4 and cardiovascular risk factors was also not statistically significant for MCI. However, cardiovascular risk factors were significantly associated with both types of MCI, even after adjusting for sex, age, and education level. These results suggest that APOE carrier status does not contribute to this risk. Next up, paper number six looks at the relationship between dementia and metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of conditions that occur together and increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. The title is Associations Between Metabolic Syndrome and Type of Dementia, analysis based on the National Health Insurance Service database of Gangwon province in South Korea. The first author is Kim, and the last author is Ryu, and it was published in Diabetology and Metabolic Syndrome. This nationwide population cohort study analyzed data from over 84,000 Korean inhabitants aged 60 years or older and investigated the relationship between metabolic syndrome and dementia after eight years. The authors looked at both AD dementia and vascular dementia and used multiple logistic regression analyses to examine associations with metabolic syndrome or five metabolic syndrome components. Analyses included factors such as age, sex, smoking, alcohol, physical inactivity, previous stroke, and previous cardiac disease. The authors found that patients with metabolic syndrome were 11.48 times more likely to develop AD compared to those without metabolic syndrome. This was not true for vascular dementia, which was only associated with one of the metabolic syndrome components, namely high glucose levels. Body mass index, fasting, glucose, and smoking were also associated with AD, and stroke history was associated with both dementia types. In line with the previous study, paper number 7 is on glycated hemoglobin, or GbA1c, which is a measure of blood sugar levels and a proxy of diabetes, by which I mean abnormally high levels are associated with diabetes. So this was published in Diabetes, Obesity, and Metabolism, The first author is Garfield, and the last author is Chaturvedi, and the title is Brain Health Across the Entire Glycemic Spectrum, the UK Biobank. The authors hypothesized that individuals with increasingly higher HbA1c, so 
hyperglycemic individuals would be more likely to have cognitive troubles than normoglycemic individuals. Using data from the UK Biobank cohort, they examined HbA1c and diabetes diagnoses in 500,000 individuals in their 40s to 60s and used these to define baseline glycemic categories. The study outcomes included incident all-cause dementia, vascular dementia, AD, hippocampal volume, white mitre hyperintensity volume, cognitive function, and cognitive decline. Diagnosed diabetes increased all-cause and AD risk, and it also elevated risks of cognitive decline. Pre-diabetes, undiagnosed, and diagnosed diabetes were all associated with higher white matter hyperintensity volumes and lower hippocampal volumes. Low to normal HbA1c levels were associated with more favorable brain health outcomes, and the authors found that certain cardiovascular drugs might also mitigate the excess dementia risk. Sticking with diabetes and related conditions, paper number eight is entitled The Insulin Resistance by Triglyceride Glucose Index and Risk for Dementia, Population-Based Study. This is a three-author paper, namely Hong, Han, and Park, and it was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. The authors tested the potential relationships between the triglyceride glucose index, a simple surrogate marker of insulin resistance, and dementia using a large-scale population data set. I'll abbreviate triglyceride glucose index to TYG. This retrospective observational cohort study used data from the National Health Information Database, which included over 5.5 million participants aged 40 years and older. Participants were divided into quartiles based on their TYG index, so this was to reflect their insulin resistance, and the incidence of dementia was assessed using hazard ratios estimated with Cox proportional hazard modeling. Just under 143,000 participants were diagnosed with dementia in a mean follow-up of 7.21 years, with the dominant type being AD dementia. Multivariate adjusted hazard ratios for patients in the fourth quartile of TYG index were higher for dementia compared to those in the first quartile. Although the effect size was small, it was independent of age, sex, smoking status, physical activity, body mass index, systolic blood pressure, and total cholesterol. So these results suggest that insulin resistance has a small but independent negative effect on cognition. Switching gears, we've got a paper on hypothyroidism, in which the thyroid gland doesn't produce enough hormones. It's paper number nine, which is entitled Increased Risk of Dementia in Hypothyroidism, a Danish nationwide register-based study. This was published in Clinical Endocrinology. The first author is Willem, and the last author is Hege Duse. The authors evaluated whether hypothyroidism is a risk factor of dementia in a register-based cohort study. They evaluated two cohorts. The first was just over 111,000 hypothyroid patients compared to around 446,000 euthyroid age and sex-matched individuals. The second cohort consisted of nearly 234,000 individuals with at least one measure of serum thyrotropin over 15 years, of whom nearly 2,300 had hypothyroidism. In these participants, dementia was defined as an International Classification of Diseases 10 code, or prescription of medicine for dementia. 
In both cohorts, the risk of dementia was significantly increased in subjects with hypothyroidism, although in one cohort, this relationship was attenuated after adjusting for pre-existing comorbidity. Overall, however, hypothyroidism increased the risk of dementia, with the association being influenced by comorbidity and age. Let's check out another organs or body parts involvement in AD, namely the kidney. Okay, also I have to say, I know that the kidney is an organ, but the thyroid is a gland technically, so hence my my weird bumble there. Apparently, associations between kidney dysfunction and dementia have been studied in Western cohorts with inconsistent conclusions. So let's see what paper number 10 has to say about the matter. It is entitled, Kidney Function and Dementia Risk in Community-Dwelling Older Adults, the Shanghai Aging Study. It was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy by first author Wang and last author Chen. The authors tested the hypothesis that lower levels of kidney function would associate with increased risk of incident dementia in an elderly Chinese population. Around 1,400 dementia-free participants aged 60 years and older were enrolled and followed up for an average of 5.3 years. The authors calculated the glomerular filtration rate, GFR, I'm going to say because I can't say that word. So they calculated GFR and the diagnoses of incident dementia and AD were established using clinical criteria based on medical, neurological, and neuropsychological examinations. Cox proportional regression was used to analyze the association of baseline GFR and dementia or AD, adjusting for age, gender, education years, APOE4 status, diabetes, hypertension, baseline mini mental state examination score, and proteinuria, which refers to increased levels of protein in urine. A total of 113 and 84 participants developed dementia and AD, respectively, and risk of dementia was increased with participants with low or moderate GFR. Low GFR at baseline was also independently associated with incident AD after adjustments when comparing to high GFR. Interestingly, the significant association between GFR and dementia risk was observed in female but not in male participants. Okay, and next we have paper number 11, which will round off the first half of our episode. We'll take a break after this one before returning for neuropsychiatric comorbidities. This one is a good transitional paper as it's on traumatic spinal cord injury, or TSCI, and the risk of dementia. It was published by first author Mahmoudi and last author Kamdar, and the title is Traumatic Spinal Cord Injury and Risk of Early and Late Onset Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementia, Large Longitudinal Study. This was published in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This cohort study identified around 7,000 adults aged 45 years and older, diagnosed with traumatic spinal cord injury, and compared these to around 916,500 adults without a diagnosis. The authors measured around 6,000 propensity scores of matched persons, and this was based on, here we go, age, sex, race, slash ethnicity, cardiometabolic, psychological, and musculoskeletal chronic conditions, U.S. Census Division, and socioeconomic variables. Incidence estimates of AD and related disorders were compared at four years post-enrollment. 
Both middle-aged and older adults with TSCI had higher incident AD and related disorders compared to those without diagnosed TSCI. Thus, adults with TSCI appear to have heightened risk of AD and could profit from improved clinical screening and early interventions to preserve cognitive function. Okay, time for a little break. I would get up and stretch, but my recording setup is a little precarious, so I'm just going to sit here and I'll see you in a couple minutes. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, I am back, and I am not seeing you because this is a podcast, but it's so ingrained in my way of speaking to say that, and I I always find myself... uh, Getting very self-reflective about our speech patterns when I'm recording. Anyway, you don't need to get in on those reflections. Let's move on. We have five more papers pertaining to comorbidities, but these are regarding neurological and psychiatric conditions. So first off, there are two papers from January 2021 that look at epilepsy. And the first one is paper number 12, which is entitled Neurodegenerative Disease is Associated with Increased Incidence of Epilepsy, a Population-Based Study of Older Adults. It was published by first author Blank and last author Willis in Age and Aging. This retrospective cohort study determined the incidence of epilepsy in Medicare beneficiaries that were diagnosed with either AD or Parkinson's disease, so PD, in 2009. The authors examined the five-year incidence of epilepsy using sociodemographic characteristics, comorbidities, and neurodegenerative disease status. They identified over 178,000 individuals with incident AD and around 104,000 with PD from a sample of 34 million Medicare beneficiaries. Epilepsy was diagnosed in 4.45% of AD patients and 4.81% of PD patients, which was around twice as frequently as in the control sample. Minority race or ethnicity was associated with increased risk of incident epilepsy. Among individuals with AD or PD, factors that increased the risk of epilepsy included stroke, traumatic brain injury, and depression, with some differences between the groups. Interestingly, in the PD group only, a history of hip fracture and diabetes were also associated with increased risk of epilepsy. And our second paper on epilepsy, number 13, is entitled Late Onset Epilepsy and Subsequent Increased Risk of Dementia. The first author is Tsai and the last author is Su, and it was published in Aging. Inflammation is considered a key pathogenic factor of both dementia and epilepsy, which prompted the authors to evaluate the association between the two conditions. They did this in a retrospective cohort study in Taiwan, which included 675 individuals 50 years or older who had epilepsy compared to around 2,000 matched control subjects without epilepsy. They found that individuals in the epilepsy cohort had a significantly increased risk of developing dementia. This remained true even after stratifying for sex. This next paper looks at the association between AD, sex, and depression, given that most adults living with AD are women who have nearly a twofold higher lifetime risk of depression. 
So paper number 14 is Depression and Increased Risk of Alzheimer's Dementia, Longitudinal Analyses of Modifiable Risk and Sex-Related Factors. It was published by first author Kim, last author Gallagher, in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. The authors used the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center database to recruit cognitively normal adults aged 50 years and older who visited memory clinics across the United States. They followed these participants until first diagnosis of AD or until dropout from the study. 652 of over 10,700 enrolled participants developed AD over a median follow-up of 55.3 months. Multivariable survival analyses showed that a recent depression, so that's within two years of assessment, was independently associated with increased risk of AD, while a remote history of depression was not. Stratification by sex showed that this association was significant among women only, but was not moderated by sex. The authors call for future research in other populations to determine whether these sex-specific results are due to neurobiological factors or differences in modifiable risk factors. Paper number 15 examined what factors impact the relationship between depression and AD in the Chinese population. It is entitled Disparities in Depression Among Chinese Older Adults with Neurodegenerative Diseases. It was published in Aging and Mental Health by first author Hao and last author Pan. This study drew from the latest wave of the Chinese Longitudinal Healthy Longevity Survey from 2014. Specifically, the authors analyzed data from 334 adults aged 65 years and older with neurodegenerative disorders, so that includes Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, and they conducted logistic regression analysis to identify risk and protective factors that predicted depression in these individuals. They found that participants living in urban areas or requiring more support for activities of daily living were more likely to have depression. On the other hand, those who lived with household members self-reported their health status as fair or believed their health status remained the same over years were less likely to have depression. These findings present important considerations for policymakers and healthcare professionals, particularly with regards to the regional disparities of healthcare services and the cultural background of neurodegenerative disease patients. To finish off this section, we have a paper on personality disorders and whether these could show prospective associations with the onset of cognitive troubles. So this was published by first author Kruitz, and last author, Altman's, and there's just one middle author, which is Hill. It was published in Personality Disorders, and the title is Personality Pathology Predicts Increased Informant Reported But Not Performance-Based Cognitive Decline, Findings from Two Samples. And in case I didn't say it, this is paper number 16. The authors looked at borderline, avoidant, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders and their relation to AD, and they expected interpersonal stressful life events and social support to mediate these relationships. They used data from two longitudinal studies, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center cohort and the St. Louis Personality and Aging Network study, which totaled around 1,500 subjects. Between the two studies, borderline personality disorder was measured with a composite from the NEO or NEO five-factor inventory, as well as self-informant and interview measures. 
borderline personality disorder features exhibited cross-sectional correlations with memory, general cognitive ability, and informant-reported cognitive problems. In particular, they predicted an increase in informant-reported cognitive problems in participants of the St. Louis study over a two-year period. However, they did not predict a decline in performance-based cognitive measures in either study. The other tested personality disorders, avoidant and obsessive-compulsive, exhibited little association with cognitive aging, and neither interpersonal variable mediated any of these effects. We have five papers left, so we're now moving into another section, which is environmental factors. We have three papers that look at the contribution of environmental factors to dementia risk. So one common topic in this sub-theme is air pollution, which I've covered in previous episodes. So that's the subject of paper number 17, which was published in Environment International by first author Morda Mace and last author Bear. And the title is Long-Term Exposure to Ambient Air Pollution and Risk of Dementia, Results of the Prospective Three-City Study. As many epidemiological studies rely on health administrative databases for the diagnosis of dementia, the authors sought to examine the association between air pollution and dementia with more reliable diagnostic tools. This French population-based cohort study assessed the effects of particulate matter under 2.5 micrometers, so this is referred to as PM2.5, so the effects of PM2.5, as well as nitrogen dioxide and black carbon on dementia diagnosis in 7,066 participants aged 65 years or older, and these were recruited between 1999 and 2001 and followed for 12 years. The presence of dementia was assessed at baseline and then followed up every two years based on neuropsychological and neurological examination and confirmed by an independent committee of clinicians. The current and past exposure to air pollutants was estimated using land use regression models based on the participants' residential addresses. All analyses were adjusted for individual and contextual confounders, which included age, sex, education, APOE E4 genotype, health behaviors, and the neighborhood deprivation index. You can check the abstract for the incidence of dementia and the estimated averages of PM2.5, but let me skip to the main finding. PM2.5 concentration was positively associated with dementia risk, including AD and vascular dementia. There was no association between nitrogen dioxide or black carbon exposure and dementia risk. PM2.5 has actually come up a lot in my previous episodes, both in epidemiological reports such as this one and in more mechanistic studies. So if you're interested, have a look back at some of the risk factor episodes from previous months. Moving along, here's another one on PM2.5, this time looking at whether the dementia risk results from long-term exposure or critical periods of exposure. Paper number 18 was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Russ, the last author is Pierce, and the title is Life Course Air Pollution, Exposure, and Cognitive Decline. Modeled Historical Air Pollution Data and the Lothian Birth Cohort 1936. The authors sought to demonstrate the feasibility of modeling historical air pollution data and use them for epidemiological studies. 
They used the EMEP4UK atmospheric chemistry transport model to model PM2.5 concentrations for the years 1935, 1950, 1970, 1980, and 1990. These were combined with contemporary modeled data from 2001 to estimate life course exposure in 572 participants who had a recorded lifetime residential history. This allowed the authors to examine the effects of historical air pollution exposure on cognitive ability measured by the Moray House Test at ages 11, 70, 76, and 79 years. After controlling for sex, IQ at age 11, social class, and smoking, the authors found that higher air pollution modeled for 1935, meaning when the participants would have been in utero, was associated with worse change in IQ from age 11 to 70 years. However, it did not affect cognitive trajectories from age 70 to 79, and there was no association of critical periods of exposure or an accumulation of risk. These results highlight the importance of looking at lifetime history to understand the impact of environmental factors on cognitive health. The last paper in this section is not on PM2.5, but rather on access to green space, which has also been associated with better brain health. So paper number 19 is entitled Associations Between Neighborhood Green Space and Brain Imaging Measures in Non-Demented Older Adults, the Cardiovascular Health Study. It was published by first author Besser and last author Longstreth in the journal Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology. This group investigated associations between neighborhood green space and brain-based MRI measures, as well as the potential moderating effect of sex and APOE genotype. The study was conducted in over 1,000 participants aged 65 or older who did not have dementia and were recruited from the Longitudinal Population-Based Cardiovascular Health Study. Neighborhood green space data five years prior to the MRI were derived from the National Land Cover Dataset and were used to estimate associations with left and right hippocampal volume, ventricular size, and burden of white matter hyperintensity. The mean neighborhood green space was 38%, and a greater proportion of green space in the neighborhood five years prior to MRI was borderline associated with lower ventricular size, i.e. less global brain atrophy. However, there was no association between green space and the other MRI outcome measures, nor was there evidence of modification by APOE genotype or by sex. Okay, we just have two more papers to go, which is good because my back is starting to hurt. These last ones are on factors that could protect against cognitive decline, so protective factors. Education often comes up as one, with many epidemiological studies suggesting that years or level of education could increase cognitive reserve and hence protect against decline. Of course, there are many related factors that can act as confounding variables, so it's always important to account for those. Paper number 20 was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Chen, the last author is Han, and the title is Education Exerts Different Effects on Cognition in Individuals with Subjective Cognitive Decline and Cognitive Impairment, a population-based study. The authors explored the effects of education on cognition in 450 individuals with subjective cognitive decline and 280 with cognitive impairment from a population-based study. This is different from previous studies as convenient sampling is often used. 
They used neuropsychological tests of memory, executive, language, and general cognitive function to assess the participants and conducted multiple regression analyses to test the association with education. From this, it was found that education overall had a positive effect on cognition in both participant groups, with some differences between the two depending on the level of education. Unfortunately, the abstract does not indicate whether other variables were taken into consideration, but I'm sure you can find those details by checking the paper. That is, paper number 20. Okay, and that brings us to our last paper, number 21. So previous work has suggested that bilinguals express dementia symptoms around four years later than monolinguals, despite showing greater neuropathology at the time of diagnosis. This has led to bilingualism being used as a proxy of cognitive reserve, which this next study examines in further detail. So this was published in Brain, Structure, and Function. The first author is Burks, and the last author is Bialystok, and this is also in collaboration with the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. This study used a novel brain health matching paradigm to examine bilingualism's contribution to cognitive reserve. 40 cognitively normal bilinguals who had undergone diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging were matched with monolinguals drawn from a pool of 165 individuals in the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative database. The white matter integrity was determined for all participants and propensity scores were obtained using white matter measures, sex, age, and education as predictive covariates. These were used for one-to-one matching between language groups. This resulted in creating a matched sample of 32 participants per group. The authors determined that matched monolinguals had a worse clinical diagnosis than would be predicted by chance from a theoretical null distribution and poorer cognitive performances than matched bilinguals, as measured by scores on the mini mental state exam. The fact that monolinguals have poorer clinical and cognitive outcomes than bilinguals for similar white matter integrity lends support to the interpretation that bilingualism acts as a proxy for cognitive reserve. Okay, good thing that was the last paper because I'm feeling my vocal cords fail me and also my cat is meowing at my door. So let me get through the credits quickly. So this month's sorting was done primarily by Ellen Rowe and Jeff. Um, the summarizing and scripting was done by me. V reviewed my script. Michelle will edit the audio. Ellen will review the editing. That is Ellen Kosh. Uh, Maggie will produce the bibliography. And lastly, Sarah will produce a word cloud. So you can probably get the sense that this podcast requires a large team. That was just a subsample of said team. We are always looking for more people to join in sorting or summarizing or even hosting episodes. Actually, even the audio editing is what we're actually needing help with. So if you're interested in doing any of those things, please get at us. You can find us through social media. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find us on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can also email us. And last Lastly, I would also like to thank Anusha Kamesh for our music. You can find her at AK Music on YouTube or under her name Anusha Kamesh on SoundCloud. That's all. I will see you here again soon for more Risk Factor episodes, uh, more on the mechanistic side next time. Bye. Again, I won't see you. I will talk to you is what I mean. (laughs) Enjoy your day. 